Well, if you'll stand with me, I'd appreciate it. We're going to get to Luke 24 momentarily, but there is an age-old tradition on Easter time uh, from many uh, branches of the Christian church around the world where the pastor, the priest says, he is risen, and the people respond, he is risen indeed. And there is a poignant story about that that comes after the communist revolution of 1917. When the communists took over Russia and they began expanding, they took over Ukraine one Easter morning after the revolution. In a village, they gather on Easter morning, the entire village of 10,000 people. And at dawn, they gather people and begin haranguing them for two hours against Christianity. After two hours of disparaging Jesus, they throw out the question, the defiant question, does anybody have any questions? There's a young 19-year-old boy who says, yes, I do. And they warn him, if you say anything for Jesus or uh, for Christianity, you will be shot immediately. He goes up on the stage and shouts out, Christ is risen. And the shot rings out and he falls off the stage dead as 10,000 voices respond he is risen indeed. And that is the, the voice of the church down through the centuries. So this morning, I will lead us. I will say, the Lord is risen. That is from our passage in Luke 24. And then if you would respond, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Okay? All righty. The Lord is risen. Amen. Keep standing. I will read our passage from Luke 24. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see. That I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This is Sunday night. And can you imagine all that is in the hearts of these disciples in that room we just read about and the followers of Jesus? Can you imagine the, the, the three prior days, beginning with Thursday night, when Jesus gathers his closest followers in an upper room in Jerusalem, and they celebrate Passover together, and during the Passover meal, he transforms it into the communion meal that we celebrate each week. And he washes their feet and he teaches them incredible truths, including that he is about to go away. 
After that, they go down to the, the, the base of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jim, Jesus is in agony crying out to God when this uh, rabble of Roman soldiers and Jewish religious leaders and, and people come and arrest him. And then they begin one trial after another throughout the night. And then early the next morning, they convict him of, uh, of uh, an executable death, beat him to a pulp, and they force him to carry his crossbeam through the streets of what we call the old city of Jerusalem. At 9 a.m. that Friday spring morning in Palestine, they hammer him to a cross. And on that cross, he bears our sin. Three hours after the crucifixion takes place, at noon on Friday, the entire Middle Eastern sky turns dark, sobering for everybody. At that moment, Jesus makes his most startling call out ever when he says to God the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, God took all of your sins, all of your sins, past, present, future, and placed them on Jesus, and he pays for them. He dies in our place. Three hours later at 3 p.m., Jesus, who really was in charge of everything from the cross, Jesus decides when it's time to die. And at 3 p.m., he prays his final prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gives up his spirit. They bury him in the tomb of a rich man. Some of us have been to this area, one of the, the two sites that most likely Jesus was crucified and buried in and rose from, and, and we can imagine uh, that tomb where Jesus was buried. All the next day is Sabbath, and nobody does anything, but early Sunday morning, after the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath is over, some women go to the tomb to anoint his body with, with, with spices, because in their minds, there's no thought of resurrection. They are completely devastated and distraught. All their hopes have been shattered. They go to the tomb. The stone is completely removed from the entrance. They go in. There's no body, or they, they see there's no body there. There are a couple of angels there who tell them Jesus is not here. He's risen. You know, go tell Peter and the others. During that day, earlier that day, Jesus appears to several of them, including the two followers of Jesus, on a seven-mile journey between Jerusalem and Emmaus to the west. He journeys with them for part of that way. And finally, when they get there, he, uh, in the breaking of bread for dinner, he reveals who he is. And they're just so excited. And then Jesus disappears. They have just made a long seven-mile trip uh, something like us beginning here and, you know, walking to the Woodlands Mall. But they're so excited to tell the others Jesus is alive that they begin immediately and walk back the seven miles that they just come. Now, you can imagine, can't you? Sometimes we are so excited. Uh, we've got some good news to tell, you know, a spouse or a child or a parent or a close friend. And we can't wait to tell them. You know, our family recently has had some good news like that. For a few weeks ago... Our fourth grandchild was born to Callie, our daughter, and her husband, Paul. Their first child, by the way, here she is now. 
I'll, uh, that's a uh, little Wren Felicity in her finest Easter outfit. You know, there are times you've got some good news and you just want to share it with people, uh, kind of like we did with, with Wren Felicity. Um, that's the way the disciples felt. And they were all in the same room, just a buzz, just chattering about several of them have seen the risen Christ and he's alive. And at that point, Jesus shows up in the room. It's amazing. In verse 36, we read that Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, uh, that would be translated shalom, peace. And that's the normal greeting today in Israel. Shalom, peace to you. And Jesus just stands in their midst. They, on their part, were startled and even frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, even though they'd been discussing and chattering that, you know, well, we've seen him. Uh, some of them had seen him, and, and they're just startled, and he's right there. He must have just appeared. And, and some of them were even frightened. Is this a ghost, or is this really him? You know, what is this? They just don't have the category. They were not expecting this. And so he says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? I think sometimes God needs to say that to me and perhaps to you. He says, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then after he shows them his feet and his hands, in verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? Almost kind of like an oxymoron. They, they, they disbelieved because they were so excited about this. It's just too good to be true. Is it real? Now, for all of you who are Aggie fans out there, yep, about a week ago, there was a very exciting basketball game involving your school. The March Madness game with A&M and Northern Iowa. And your Aggies were behind 12 points with only 35 seconds to go. And I was not watching this game, not being a, a, you know, an Aggie graduate, but our men's and marriage pastor, Joe Lanzalotti, is an Aggie, and he was watching it. But when they were behind 12 points with only 35 seconds to go, he you know, accepts defeat and turns it off and goes to do something else. <laughs> but then he begins getting these texts that, can you believe it? And they're saying that A&M has come back. But Joe is slow to believe it. He's reluctant to believe it. And it is not until he goes to ESPN to verify that A&M came back and tied it in regulation, and then they win the game in double overtime. And this incredible comeback. Well, the, yeah, Joe. Yeah, the disciples, they were slow to believe this. I mean, even when they saw him, is this real? Because they were so devastated and discouraged by what happened on Friday morning when he was crucified. And so, to, to convince them even more, Jesus says, hey, do you have anything here to eat? And, and yeah, we got some fish here. He takes it and eats it. But he's showing them that the resurrection, the resurrection is, is not just spiritual, it is physical, bodily, literal resurrection in every sense of the word. So he's alive. Now, at this point, he's got some more things to say to them. And I can imagine him at this point looking deep into their eyes. 
He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything in the Old Testament scriptures about me must be fulfilled. Last week, if you were here, we talked about how the the entire Old Testament points to Jesus in one way or the other. If you want to understand the Old Testament, look for Jesus. He is the secret to unlocking not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. In fact, there are some 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled or uh, predicted. Some of them await a second coming that were about Jesus uh, coming the first time and then again coming the second time. 300 prophecies. One statistician did some research on this sort of thing and found out that the odds of even eight of these that he chose being fulfilled in one person were astronomical. In fact, he said the the odds of those eight prophecies that he named was one times 10 to the 17th power. Now, I know some of you guys are math and science guys. I'm not. And you've got some idea about how big that number is, but it's a big number. In fact, uh, this is how that number would be described in kind of a Ronald Reagan fashion. Um, Take Thin Mints, chocolate Thin Mints. Some of you know those all too well. (laughs) And what if you filled Texas, covered the the ground of Texas with Thin Mints? Now, that would be a lot of Thin Mints, wouldn't it? In fact, if you covered this room with Thin Mints, or or our 65-acre campus, that's a ton of Thin Mints. But can you imagine covering all of Texas with Thin Mints? Up to two feet high and then blindfolding somebody, giving them a month to roam and range all over Texas, you know, from, from, uh, you know, way up in Amarillo to, you know, down in Brownsville. And after a month, they've got to choose one thin mint. And the odds of getting the exact thin mint are one times 10 to the 17th power. And this statistician is saying, did these things happen just by coincidence? Not hardly. Not hardly. They were fulfilled in Jesus. They must be fulfilled because this is God's word written. Jesus then, in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opens their eyes. And until God opens your eyes, you don't get it. And my prayer for you, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, or that if you've thought that you could kind of earn your way by being good enough, or that if you've rejected Jesus, dismissed him sort of out of hand, that God this morning would open your eyes to see Jesus. Thus it is written, he said to them, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now that word repentance, that repentance should be, what's he calling for? Well, it's a simple term. Really, that means you, you, you make an about face. You, you turn from living a life for yourself, and you turn to God. You turn to Christ. Kind of like the, the tax collector in Luke 18, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You turn from yourself and your, and your sinful life to Jesus. I need a Savior. I need forgiveness of sins. That's repentance. And, and Jesus says that with repentance, turning to Christ, putting your trust in Christ, receiving Christ, there is the forgiveness of all your sins. Like Jared's beautiful song that he sang earlier, there is 
Do you know what it feels like to be forgiven? Well, if you're in Christ, you know what it feels like. All your sins are forgiven. Then he says, you are witnesses of these things. You're eyewitnesses. You have watched me. You've heard me. You saw me nailed to a cross Friday morning. You see me now. You are eyewitnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father, talking about the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There is power to live a new life in God the Holy Spirit. So there's God the Father, God the Son who came to earth, God the Spirit that Jesus is going to send after his resurrection. One God is a mystery, three persons, but one God. And then, in verse 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany. That's about two miles to the east, up on the Mount of Olives. And he lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, all through the Bible, all through the Bible, the Bible is clear. You worship God alone. No angel, no great man, no, no one else, only God. But, but here the disciples are worshiping the risen Christ because he is not just man, he is God in the flesh, and they worship him. Church, the message of the early church was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw him, and it changed everything for them. I want to close this morning with three central truths about the resurrection. The first is this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is based on solid historical evidence. Have you ever thought through some of the evidences in the Gospels about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? For example, take the empty tomb. Again, some of us can imagine that. We've been there. And we can imagine and think about what happened that weekend. I mean, Jesus was such a high-profile figure, everybody knew where he was buried. I mean, there was no doubt. We didn't, we didn't lose track of things here. Well, what happened to that body that the tomb was empty on the third day? Did the Jews, the religious leaders, come and steal the body and move it some other place? Did the Romans come and sort of steal the body to move it? Well, if so... When the early church started claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, they could just go get that body and parade it up and down the main street of Jerusalem. But there was no body to get. Did, what's the option? Did the disciples go and steal the body? Did the disciples who were, you know, discouraged, devastated, not expecting a resurrection, scaredy cats really, afraid for their own lives that they would be crucified, did they overpower the Roman soldiers and steal the body? And then live the rest of their lives all out for Jesus, dying martyrs' deaths, most of them, for what they knew was a lie. Is that reasonable? I don't think so. There is no other good explanation for the empty tomb. Or take the resurrection appearances. There were eyewitnesses that saw them. Now, in courts of law today, all over the time, we go by eyewitness testimony. Oh, yeah, I saw this happen. And, and uh, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. Yes, we saw it. We saw the risen Christ, and it changed everything for them. There was one Harvard Law professor who once said this, according to the laws of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proven by more substantial evidence than any other event of ancient history. Now you think, you hear a story like that, a quote like that, and I could give you hundreds. You hear a quote like that, and you think, well, why doesn't just every scholar and every historian believe in the resurrection if the evidence is so, so overwhelming? Well, I can tell you why. It is the same reason why 
anybody, why most people uh, do not believe in the resurrection. They never investigated the evidence because they don't want to investigate the evidence because they don't want to believe in Jesus as the Savior and the Lord. Because if it is all true, if the claims of Jesus are true, that means that I need to bow my knees before Jesus and start obeying what he has for me because he is the Lord of all glory. People don't want to believe. And the problem is not the, the sufficiency of the evidence, but in spite of the sufficiency of the evidence, people never investigate the evidence. So many of them don't. If you are here today and you've been a bit skeptical about Jesus, uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming, even though you've got some skepticism. And I would urge you to have the courage to examine the evidence that's out there. For example, just one resource for you, Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, an excellent resource today. It is in our library over in Portable 2. It's in our bookstore through those doors. Be a great book to start with. The first central truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is based on solid historical evidence. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, means that we have hope. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this life is all there is. This world is all there is. When we die, it's done. Sometimes... I have gone to a funeral of someone way too young to die. And I have thought, if they don't know the Lord, if the parents and family don't know the Lord, I have thought, oh, how do they get through it? How do they get through it knowing they will never see that child again? They will never see that young person again, ever. They have no hope. If Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, then we will not rise from the dead. We have no hope. There is a Christian scholar by the name of Gary Habermas. He's got two earned doctorates from Michigan State and Oxford University. His specialty has been the historical evidence for the resurrection. He once had a debate with Anthony Flew. Some of you may recognize that name, one of the leading philosophical atheists. There was an independent panel of five judges. Four of them uh, agreed that Habermas won the debate. A fifth one abstained. In fact, one of the judges said this, one of the non-Christian judges, hey, if that's all the evidence that Anthony Flew's got, it's time for me to, inv to start investigating the resurrection. Most people never investigate it, scholars and all. So Gary Habermas was being interviewed some years ago about the resurrection. And at one point he turns personal. And he begins talking about when his wife Debbie, as too young a woman, began dying of stomach cancer. And after they did all the treatments and it wasn't working, she was in an upstairs bedroom dying of stomach cancer. And he said it was the most painful thing he has ever gone through. He said from time to time, his students would call him. And they would say something like this, Dr. Habermas, aren't you so glad for the resurrection? He said even though it was such a poignant moment that I would have to smile when they would do that. He said, I smile for two reasons. One is because my students were reminding me, trying to encourage me with my own teachings. And secondly, it worked. Here I was in utter agony because my wife, the mother of our four young kids, was dying upstairs. He said, he said you know, if God came to me, I know the question I'd ask him. I'd immediately say, Lord, why is this happening to Debbie? Why is this happening? And he said, I know what God would say. This is what he would say. He said, Gary, do you believe in the resurrection of my son? He said, of course, I wrote seven books on it. 
It says, well, Gary, uh, and then, you know, but, but do you believe in the resurrection of my son? And, and he would say, well, what about Debbie? What about Debbie? And he said, I'm convinced that God would have repeated over and over until I got it. Do you believe in the resurrection of my son? Until finally I would understand. Yes. And that means I will see Debbie again. For all eternity, I will be with Debbie again. There is hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, he concluded the interview, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it can get me through that time, the most painful time of my life, it can get me through anything. It was enough for AD 30 when Jesus died. It was enough for 1995 when my wife died. And I will say to us, it is enough for you and me in 2016. For whatever we face, it is enough. <clears throat> the third central truth, not only is it based on solid historical evidence, not only is it the basis for all hope, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ demands that we be all in for Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. No one has ever lived the life that Jesus lived. No one has ever taught like Jesus taught. I mean, uh, he never wrote a thing, but millions of people all across the globe read his words every day. No one has ever taught like he's taught. No one has ever done the miracles that he has, has done with eyewitness testimony. And the whole culmination of his life, the whole point of his life, was so that one day he could be nailed to a cross so that he could bear your sins and mine because of his great love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus died in your place and mine. Maybe you came in thinking that you could earn your way to heaven by being religious or showing up at church some or, or trying hard. You know, if you could earn your way, Jesus would have needed to die. But because you couldn't, because God is a perfect God, a holy God, uh, you could never earn your way. But Jesus died in your place. And if we will simply but trust him. Now, I've got two messages to two groups here this morning, two closing appeals. One, if you have never trusted Christ, if you've not been clear about the gospel, that Jesus died for you and you need to receive him, if you have thought that you could be good enough to earn your way to heaven, then this morning is your time for you to, to simply bow your head, humble yourself before all bow the knee to God and say, oh, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he will save you. He will. Forgiveness of sin. Now, many of you have done that, but there are many of us who have done that, and, and some of you have... Um, your heart has grown cold, and you've grown angry towards God or maybe bitter in life. Life has been hard like it is for all of us, and you've left your first love. And the resurrection is a call to come home to God, to give him all of your life. The resurrection of Christ demands that we give all of our life to him. From time to time, I tell our church this story about Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, who had uh, some of the greatest impact in the last 100 years, led the fight against apartheid in South Africa. And as a young man, he was arrested and put on trial, very public trial. Everyone knew he would be convicted, and he would either be executed or sent to prison for a very long time. But he said this at his trial, facing either death or a lifetime imprisonment. He said 
The cause of ending apartheid is the cause for which I will gladly invest every day of the rest of my life. And it is a cause for which I am fully prepared to die. Now, I love that powerful statement, showing his willingness to die for a noble cause. Friends, as noble as that is, we have get the, got the cause that is the greatest cause ever. It is the cause that brings freedom and life to men and women, not just for this lifetime, but for all eternity and the forgiveness of sin. It is the cause of the one who came and died for you and rose again. Are you willing to invest gladly every day of the rest of your life for that cause, the cause of Christ? Are you fully prepared to die? Now, if you are, if you're like me and your heart says, yes, I'm in, count me in, then those aren't just words. That changes life. That changes behavior. For example, if you decide, I am all in for Jesus, he's going to be first in my life, like the first commandment says, have no other gods before me. If you decide that, that'll mean some implications, such as you will give him the first day of your week. When God's people gather on Sunday morning to worship, you're there. If you're in town, you're there because he's first in your life. Each day, you'll give him the first part of your day. You will meet with God alone in, the, in his word and, and ask, open my eyes. Lord, speak to me through your word. You will give him not only the first day of the week, the first part of your day, you will give him the first part of your income, you know, kind of where the rubber meets the road. And you will give him your income as an expression, he's first in my life, and I mean it. Now, some of you need to come home to God because he died for you and he rose again. It's the greatest cause you could give your life for. What else would you give your life for? Do it today. Stand with me, please. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, friend, this is your key moment in eternity. Breathe a prayer right now and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will save you and give you life and forgiveness. Friend, if you're a believer and you have gone back to living your life for yourself, it is time to come home to say to your God in heaven, Lord, I am all in because of a risen Savior who died and rose again for me. And breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm all in. Lord God, thank you so much that on this Easter morning we can proclaim and have hope that we've got life in Jesus. We bless you.